seat in front of you. And we're going to be at page 185. So we're kind of in the front of the book this time. And uh, we're starting at a point where we're going to start reading is a place where the two of the three main characters, Ruth, Naomi, and the other characters, Boaz, Ruth and Naomi, it looks like things have kind of turned around for them. But the truth is, they're still in a, in a really bad situation. And I want you to, to pick up on, as we read these first five verses, we're going to kind of go through section by section and explore it as we go through this chapter. I want you to pick up on the anxiety that you hear in the way that Naomi is talking about their situation and what to do about it. Because this, you're going to see her go, because they're in a desperate situation. Okay, and anxiety, if you don't know it, most of the time, even if you think this, what I'm feeling, this anxiety I'm feeling has nothing to do with what you're saying, John, I promise you it does. Anxiety comes from being alone and being overwhelmed. And you may feel anxious right now in a a present day situation and you go, where is this anxiety coming from? I'm not, I'm neither alone nor overwhelmed. <laughs> but every time in your life where you're overwhelmed and someone doesn't come and be there with you and help you get through that, that overwhelmed feeling is, you, it's doubled down by being alone and then it just sinks down inside you and you carry it around until some little, sometimes just a middling little everyday event triggers that thing to come up, and there you feel overwhelmed and alone. So, sound familiar? Don't you love to think about this? You come to church like, this, like I'm going to feel better when I come here. John's going to certainly say something that like, just gives me comfort. Well, now I'm sitting here, and you're, you're going, you know, where's my Ativan, right? <laughs> I need two of them today. So let's start reading, and you'll see my point here in Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother, uh, excuse me, one day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you've been a kinsman of ours? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So, Naomi and Ruth have, have come from being in, 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 the, in the land of Moab. They were just desperate women. They were, you know, they're, they're, all the men in their lives died, and they come back home. They're, they were refugees in Moab, but they come back home when they're worst refugees. Because when, when Ruth, I mean, excuse me, when Naomi went to Moab, she had a husband and two sons. And for a woman in that culture, Having men is, it was your security. 
while she's in Moab, her two sons and her husband die, and all she has is their is their, her two sons' daughter, her daughter-in-laws, wives of her two sons. That didn't make it any better. Now she's just even more responsible, right? So she goes, "Oh, let's go back to Israel because I heard that the famine that drove us to Moab is over now. So let's go back there and maybe you know something will work out for us." She's an optimist, right? Uh, she's like the the uh, the Seinfeld character, the cockeyed optimist. Okay, gosh. <laughs> what was his name? Billy. Okay, gosh. Rick, Rick told me I should start using more updated sitcoms to make, you know, pop culture references of. He said The Office. Okay, I hereby retire my Seinfeld references. <laughs> okay. There's a time for everything under heaven. Okay, I know Seinfeld is my favorite show of all time. <sighs> Got to move on. All right. So Naomi is in this place, and last week we saw things returning, you know, looking more promising. But as you'll see, they didn't. It didn't really change their circumstances. They had a source of food. It could get them out of some of the pickle that they're in. But the truth is, at this point, they're finishing the harvest. Naomi looks around, the roof, wherever they're staying, the roof's still leaking, the neighbor's dog is still barking, they still feel this existential angst because where's our security? You know, how are we going to make it? Me, Naomi's an older woman, Ruth is a widow, they're both widows, they're both dependent in a patriarchal society, and Naomi goes, oh, I know, I got a plan, Right? I know what I can do. And so what awakens in her awakens in all of us at some point. We know that there's more. When we're just getting by, we know there's more. See, God put something inside each of us that even if we can't define it necessarily as clearly as maybe certain people could, there's an an, an a restlessness. In fact, a, a famous mathematician once said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And that what God has for us is this, and to the Hebrews, they use this word peace, that God promised them peace, but it was a word that we've all heard, most likely, shalom. And the word shalom means not just peace like Oh, it's chill, you know. I remember in high school, I smoked a lot of pot, and I thought that was being shalom, <laughs> right? It's not. It's not, right? It's temporary. Shalom is something where every dimension of your life is full. Spiritual wholeness, financial wholeness, relational wholeness, Wholeness of body. It's like wholeness in every dimension of life. That's why when you read the Old Testament, you see so much of God's relationship with them had these practical kind of real life uh, benefits. 
And some people mistake that and go, oh, the spiritual is more important. They had that too. But you see them experiencing in their relationship with God this groundedness and this wholeness. And that's what Shalom promised. Well, Naomi and Ruth did not have Shalom. And the law that God gave the Jewish people made a provision for Shalom in all these different areas. And, you know, we don't have time to explore what that looks like in every sense, but what she said was, uh, Boaz, in whose field you've been working, is our kinsman redeemer. Now, this is something we could talk a lot about, but they, the, the Jewish law made this provision for widows. And remember t- last week we talked about how God made a, a social safety net for people and, and, and this practice of gleaning. And if you want to hear about what that was, go back. The, the law that God gave Israel, people sometimes, it gets a bad rap, like law. Law is a bad thing, you know. Law, when I was growing up, law was a bad thing. I mean, we, we, used, to, we used to spray paint over stop signs. <laughs> we really did. We, you know, because we thought uh, there was a song, even signs, signs, everywhere signs. They're all blocking the scenery, uh, breaking my mind, you know, do this, don't do that. Can't you read the signs? Now, that's a really old song. Some of you have never heard before, except a few gray hairs like me. But that was the mentality we had was like, don't tell me what to do. I mean, the law, that, that sucks. I'm so glad that as Christians, we don't have to listen to the law anymore. No, it's not. Don't have that idea. Because God gave them, in the Old Testament, the word law was a dynamic equivalent of this idea of covenant. That God made this covenant, this agreement, that he said, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to provide all these things for you, and what I want you to do is be loyal to me. And it was this idea of relationship. They were all familiar with covenant. In the ancient world, covenants Covenants governed everything. Covenants governed uh, politics. It governed business. It governed family. Covenant was the way that life worked. So when we hear law, we think, oh, boo, hiss. No. It was something that was really life-giving. Now, it can be misused and become a a, a burden. And, And Jesus even said, you know, I want you to put off this yoke of the law, this the way that it was being taught in his time. But it, it, God never wants to remove the sense of obligation and responsibility from us because we are obliged be, to be alive, is to be obligated in s- certain ways and to be responsible for certain things. So this, they had this statute in the law about what widows who had no family uh, could expect if they got into this place where not only were there widows and they, and they had no family to support them, but their family land was somehow lost because of poverty or hardship or, or even just people doing crazy dumb things, uh, becoming, you know, alcoholic and, and ruining their lives. And if you lose your land, they had several ways that you get your land back because what God said was, this land is something I own, but I'm, I'm letting you stay on it as my people as long as you're faithful. But and I, I want to protect your right to have that land because the land was so important to them. It is today. You know, having your own property and your own land, property rights are really a, an important part of, of democracies and freedom and flourishing. We know that. 
We don't need to go into that economic theory, but it's important. Property rights are really crucial. And so these widow had lost their family property because when the famine hit, whatever reason, we're not, we aren't privy to the story, but they lost their property. And they moved to Moab, and maybe they, they, you know, they sold the property and they lived off the money, and then they got to this point where they, 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 were, they were experiencing privation. They come back home, and they don't have their property. Now, the cool thing about the Jewish law, this covenant was, God said every 50 years, any property that was forfeited for whatever reason, right? I mean, you could have, been, you could have sold your property so you could mainline heroin. And every 50 years, your property is given back to your family. If you weren't alive, it's given back to your, uh, your, your, the, the, your, the people that come after you. I mean, isn't that amazing mercy by God saying, I'm not going to let your sins define you forever or your mistakes ruin everybody that comes after you. Now, our culture today has had some measure of the sense of that, and you can see it in bankruptcy law and certain kinds of things. But that's a part of the heart of God. Because we are prone to making really bad choices. At this moment, everybody's supposed to go like this. Okay. You're supposed to ponder that thought and go, oh yeah, I remember when I made a really bad choice. I made eight or ten really bad choices. I had eight or ten years of really bad choices, right? And you start remembering, oh, it sucked, it was so bad, I lost this and this and this and this. And there wasn't any provision for that. You're just on your own. Well, God said to the Jewish people, the world I'm going to give you and the world that where I am the center of is a world that's based on mercy and restoration and freedom. And if you want that world, you can have it. If you don't want it, you're on your own. That's cool. I'm, God doesn't twist our arm. He doesn't come behind us and force us. Come over to the cross and believe, you know. Because they used to do that in the early days when the church got in bed with the government after Constantine. The, Rome would conquer people and they would force them to become Christians. You can't force anybody to become a follower of Jesus. But they forced them to externally, you know, give up their gods and, and follow Christ and, and some, who knows what, what that really looked like. But it, it didn't happen. But the people, eventually, if you're forced to do something, you start hating what you're forced to do, don't you? Right? Coercion, there's, there's no good in that. And I want to tell you something. As we get into this story, this story, it's like over and over and over, God does this, is he disabuses us of the destructive notions that religion give us about who God is, about who we are, about what is the best way for people to live. And in this story, there's some things that are going to happen here in a second that are just so surprising when you read it that you go, gosh, Man, I wish, I wish I would have grabbed hold of that long ago. And I, I, and I wish a lot of people I knew understood that. I wish even, because I've had people tell me, I wish the church I was raised in had understood what you just said. Because they 
Like a, a young guy last week came up to me after church and said, I never got it how, you know, this, that, that love is really at the center of this whole thing. He said, I was raised in a church that taught me to be afraid of God and be afraid that, you know, God is just going to smack me. And I'm thinking, well, you're, you know, you're supposed to respect God. God's, God is going to hold us accountable for things, but it, it's his love that's supposed to motivate us. And he goes, I'm so glad I heard that. He said, gosh, it, I can't tell you. I'm, I, I don't even know what to think about that. And I'm thinking, wow, that's cool that he heard it. And, he, you know, he's a young man in his 20s. It would be nice if you, if you learned that when you were three, you started experiencing, right? So here in the story, this kinsman, there, there's a thing called the kinsman redeemer. And when widows lost everything, a close relative who wasn't married had a responsibility, they're called a kinsman redeemer, to marry the widow, have children then that would carry on the, his, his family member's name, not his name, his family member's name, buy back the land. So the, the kinsman redeemer had to pay a price to get the land back. So whoever the family had sold the land to, whoever owned it, they would buy it back. And there was a rule. You, you couldn't add interest to it. You couldn't, you know, uh, high, ha, jack up the price and, and rip people off. You had to pay whatever the original price was when the family lost it. And then the land would belong to that family. So like if your brother died and his wife and he, he and his wife didn't have kids, you, if you're not married, you marry them, you have kids, and the kids continue in the name of your brother, not your name. It's a very challenging kind of a thing for people. So this man Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's one of the, he's one of the close relatives who... The law says, and it, there's no, this is the thing, there's no penalty if you don't want to be a kinsman or redeemer. The wife of the man can come up to you in public and take your shoe off and spit at you and say, you know, you've failed your family, but there wasn't any kind of sin, uh, sanction, you know, like you go out and you get, get beat or you lose something, you're fined. It was just more of a sense of obligation because it's family. So Boaz, who's a, we met him the last couple of weeks. He's a rich guy. He's a really good man, person of faith, uh, really seems to love God. He's very generous, like you saw last week, how he cared for Ruth, even though Ruth was an immigrant. And she was an immigrant from Moab, and Moab was a nation that was hostile to Israel. So she was an immigrant from a despised country that had really mistreated the Jews. And so we saw last week when Boaz had to say to his workers, I, will, I don't want you mistreating her. I don't want you harassing her and bullying her because that's what they did to Moabitus, Moabites and Moabitesses. Men and women who would, who would find the Moabites, who would find themselves in Israel, they would, be, they, could, they would expect to be disrespected at the least. And so Boaz said, we're not going to have any of that. We're going to treat her differently. And because he'd heard about how she tra started treating Naomi, her mother-in-law. 
And she did some things we talked about before that were wonderful. But Naomi's at this place, and she goes, we're desperate. What do we do? Oh, I got a plan. Since Boaz is our kinsman redeemer, he has an obligation to buy back our land. And maybe he'll do more than buy back our land, but at least we'll get our land back. I want you to dress up. Put your best clothes on. Put your best perfume on. I want you to go to the threshing floor where they're, because it's at the end of the harvest, and I'll tell you what the threshing floor is in a second. And, he, and after, like late at night, I want you to go over and find out wherever he's sleeping, because the workers would stay near the grain because they didn't want people to steal it. And so he's sleeping by these piles of grain, and I want you to go, and I want you to sort of take his, his uh, outer garment and just lift it up over his feet and then lay at his feet. So, you know, here's him laying like that, and you lay at his feet. So when he, when, he, when he sits up to cover his feet up, he goes, oh, there's a woman. It was a pretty clever thing. <laughs> if you think about it, right? <laughs> Jay, you liked that, didn't you? What is... Never happened to me before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, send, I'll send Maggie an email. <laughs> and so she's kind of saying what Naomi is saying, and just in case, Boaz seems like a, you know, an upright guy, just in case he doesn't really get it that he's our kinsman redeemer, will sweeten the offer up a little bit, right? I mean, do you understand what he's saying? If you don't get it, let me let, me let you in a little insight on Hebrew. The, the word uncover his feet, the word feet has two meanings. It's used in two ways. One for feet. It's also used for genitals. <laughs> Do you get the doll yourself up and put on your perfume part of this? Naomi's desperate. Do you understand? Desperate people do desperate things. And the second, you're, the, she mentions the word, if you haven't heard it yet, listen to this word, lie down. That word lie down is used in several ways. As you would expect, it means to lie down and rest, or it means to lie down, you know, get it on, hanky-panky, uh, right? Do you get it? it? It has sexual innuendo to it. You know, is that, some of you are blushing. Okay, I'll say it, sex! <laughs> it meant to take his garment and lift it up so that, you know, what's exposed, and then lie down at his feet. And he's been, you know, they've been celebrating. He's had a few glasses of wine. Do you see what Naomi's doing? Shh, that's, thank you, Roy. <laughs> I always need Roy for clarity. <laughs> Roy is our, our resident Hebrew scholar. <laughs> but Naomi, she isn't going to leave anything to chance. Do you understand? Because you know what anxiety does? Anxiety pushes you, doesn't it? It just, it just makes you, I gotta, it's, I feel like I've got to do it. Because here it is, when you're overwhelmed, what does anxiety come from? Being overwhelmed and being alone. So when you're alone, you've got to do what you can. And desperate, like there's a saying, desperation, you never know what you're capable of until you're really desperate. Good and bad. 
And you can see here, Naomi is desperate. So the next part of the story picks up in verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a kinsman redeemer. So she goes to the threshing floor. Now, listen. This scene starts in some kind of a ramshackle house that Ruth and Naomi are in. And it's gonna, it moves to the threshing floor, then it goes back to the house. Now, but there's a movement inside Naomi's heart. Because this, this whole book, even though it's the book of Ruth, this book is really about Naomi. And, and Ruth and Boaz play a central part. But you'll see how Naomi, it really is a, a, the, the, the focal point of this, what she's going through. So she, in this house, she is anxious. Go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a place usually up on the top of a hill. And sometimes people would create a, a wooden floor or they would put stones together. But what they do is they take their grain and they put it on this threshing floor. And they had different ways of doing this, but they would, they would beat the grain until the, the grain separated from the, the stalk. Because the grain was what they wanted to keep, right? The grain is what you make wheat out of. And, and so uh, they would beat it or they would grind it. And then they would take these threshing like forks, is it what they call them. They were kind of a, a crude instrument. And they would, they would take the, the threshed grain and they would throw it up in the air. And because they were on a hill, the wind would move up the hill and the wind would catch the, the stalks and the part, the, the, what they call the chaff, and it would blow it away, and the heavier grain would fall back on the ground. And they would just keep doing that and keep doing it, and it's a way of sifting. But it was an ingenious kind of a, approach because the wind would carry away all the stuff that you don't want, and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And so the, the threshing floor, it's a place of sifting, and it's a place of provision. So follow with me. You get sifted before you get the provision. All right? So it moves to the, sift, to the threshing floor. And Naomi, I mean, Ruth follows Naomi's plan. She uncovers his feet. And then she lies down. Okay? Now, again... You're going to see uh, at least seven times in these few verses that we're reading here, it says lie down, lie down, lie down. That becomes a really important thing. And it's not, you're going to see in a minute what the focus of it is, but I want you to just pay attention to that little phrase, that word. I already told you a little bit about what it means. So Boaz wakes up, he finds this woman sleeping near him. Now, this is the thing, this is the, you know, we're coming to this moment of truth because in the ancient world, women didn't have the protections and things that they have today. And, you know, this story could go a completely different direction than what we've read or what you're going to read. Because it wouldn't be unusual for a, a man in that situation to take advantage of this woman and say, oh, she's here to sleep with me. And, you know, she's, who's gonna, she's, a, she's an immigrant. 
I can take advantage of her. I can do whatever I want. I'm a rich citizen. She's a poor nobody, immigrant. And he wakes up and he looks at this woman and he doesn't do that. We're going to read that in the next section. But this is like this point. And he goes, what do you want? And, and she goes, uh, you're our family's kinsman redeemer. Would you spread the edge of your cloak? And she's using this metaphorical language. And, and we've already heard it last week because Boaz said, uh, he commended her faith because he said, you've left your gods and your people and you've come to seek refuge under the Lord's wing. Now, this is another picture I want you to pick up. So it was, he was employing this agricultural image that they were all familiar with. When you'd see little chicks running around, and they'd get afraid, and they would run towards their mother, and the mother would put their wings around them and protect them. Okay? The chicks are anxious and overwhelmed. I mean, they're, they're, they're overwhelmed and alone, and they run into their mother, and they're comforted. See the picture? And so she's saying and the same language he had used, you know, weeks before when he first met her. And he said, you know, you've sought refuge under the Lord's wings, the God of Israel. She says, that God has made you his proxy to care for us. And we're seeking refuge under your wings but she's expanding it because here's what she's saying and i want you to go and follow the, the figure of speech she's not just asking for for the land to be restored because he could do that he could just pay the money and that's it and and sometimes we think in our lives what we really need is i just need a better job i need a better life situation could you do with a better job yeah Almost anybody could have a better job. Could you have a better life circumstances? Sure. But the mistake we make is we think this hunger I have for shalom will be satisfied if I just have my land back. Right? Because Naomi was feeling anxious. She didn't have security. She didn't have that family land, that property that might give her security. But she knew, and also Ruth knew, that she needed family. She needed relationship as much as she needed land. And so she was asking Boaz a bold thing. She was asking Boaz to marry her. And you thought back then only men could initiate it or only one family to another. This was a bold move. It wasn't you won't find this, I think, anyplace else in the Old Testament. So culturally, that was kind of the way it went. But here is this young woman who's making a bold move. She is saying to Boaz, I want you to marry me. Take, take your garment and cover me. It was, a, it was a figure of speech. But Boaz got it. And so Boaz... Let's go, let's go in verse 10. It says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This is how he responds. This was, I think this is a surprise. There's all kinds of surprise in this. I don't have time to un, unpack all of it, but I want to point out a couple of things. 
He says, uh, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater. In other words, this gesture you've made to me to come here and ask me to cover you is greater than anything else you've done for Naomi. He tells her why. Uh, you have not run after the younger man because he was an older guy. All right. He's probably a middle-aged guy. You have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. And she was, she was uh, well-respected in the community by now. She was uh, apparently attractive. If you, if you read this whole story, you'll see. The, people considered her to be a woman of good character, even though she was from Moab. They saw how she had treated Naomi, one of the Jewish widows, you know, her, her mother-in-law. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Because he, he's going to marry her. And if he doesn't marry her, and, and, she, and the other guy, the other kinsman and redeemer, who's a closer relative, wants to marry her, he doesn't want her to have that kind of stigma. Like, she's already fooling around with Boaz, and now she wants this guy. He, he, was, he was being respectful of her, which, you know, it doesn't always happen. And so he says, uh, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her, like, you know, for her to carry it. Then he went back to town. So the surprise here is, is that Boaz says to Ruth, and, and she's there. She says, I'm just your servant. Just take care of me. I'm, who am I? Boaz says to her, the Lord bless you. And he just begins to lavish her with respect and value and commendation. And he tells her, like, I'm a, I, I, you are so amazing that it takes my breath away. I think that she wasn't in any way expecting that kind of a response. And that's the thing about the gospel is, the gospel, when we encounter Jesus... We get this kind of response. We look at ourselves and we go, ah, I'm not worth much. You know, who am I? And Jesus comes and says, you're amazing. You're wonderful. You've blown it. Like these two women, they've made, made some bad choices in their lives. But he said, I value you and I want to give you everything that's in your heart that you're longing for. And there, I think it doesn't say in the text how she responded, but I think she's got to start crying. Have you ever had someone do something to you, a, a real unexpected, needed kindness? Have you ever had one of those moments where someone just out of the blue? I remember a guy in our church once, had a, he had a, a lot of stuff going on in his life. He made some bad choices. He had to get his car fixed. And while he was at uh, the dealer getting, you know, coming to pick it up, the dealer said, you know, when he wanted to pay for it, he said, no, uh, a guy who's a friend of yours, he said he's from your church, paid for it. And it was like $2,000. And he said, he, he told me the story. He said, he just started crying. Like, my gosh. 
because he, had, he didn't have the money because he had done some really irresponsible things. And nobody knew about it but him. And yet God knew what he needed. And this guy shows up. He didn't even know who he was. He just said, it's just a friend of yours. Who was he? And he said, oh, he's just kind of average looking guy. And he couldn't figure out, because our church was a little back, bigger back then, who was that? That masked person, that masked check writer, you know? And, and it, he said it just touched him. And I think that's where Naomi was at. And Bo- Boaz refuses to take advantage of Ruth's vulnerability. Like, when we're vulnerable, God doesn't say to us, you got to clean up your act before I'm going to help you. He meets us right where we are. Just like Boaz met Ruth. He didn't say, Ruth, there's a few more things you need to do. You need a little more makeup. You need to lose some weight. You need to do this. You need to do that. He just said, I'm going to give you everything you ask right now. Grace is freaking surprising. Real grace is like, it's scandalous. You know, over and over in the New Testament, the cross... There's, a, there's an adjective put in front of the word for the cross where Jesus died in our place. And it's, it's, it says that this cross, and sometimes it's a noun, is a scandal. It's a scandal to people who have to get paid. When you owe them something, they want it to the penny. Have you ever, you ever been to a restaurant where someone pulls a calculator out to calculate the tip? Now, maybe you're one of those persons, and now suddenly you're offended at me. <laughs> what I urge you to do is, is after we, we, we close and everyone leaves, I want you to sit in this chair. I just want you to stare at this for a while and realize the generosity of God. Now, I'm not saying if you had a really, really super rude waiter, <laughs> you should do that. Maybe. But that's a scandal, and it's still a scandal. It was a scandal back then. Grace, undeserved favor, is the heart of the gospel, and it's always scandalous. Now, Boaz promises to do everything she asks. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to restore your land. Hopefully, we'll have children uh, and more. He says, I'm going to do it. And he repeats that. Again, when he gives her the barley, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. If it wasn't the Redeemer, this other person, he says, I'm going to do it. So he reinforces that earlier statement so she won't think he was just like excited in the moment. You know, there's like there's a a woman (laughs) at your feet in the middle of the night. You know, you're going to sometimes, you're an old guy, you might say some things that you kind of got ahead of yourself. Whereas in the morning, you kind of have a chance to think about it a little bit more. He didn't want to leave her any confusion. He is going to do this because of her. He says, because I want you to know how valuable you are. And that this God of Israel, and I want to tell you something about this. The, the, this God of Israel was known as the kinsman redeemer. Over and over and over, dozens of times, God says, I'm going to redeem you. I am your redeemer, which means to buy you out of slavery, to buy you out of hawk, to buy you out, to buy your stuff back from the, uh, what's the place you go and sell 
the pawn shop, right? I'm going to buy your stuff out of the pawn shop. I'm your redeemer. And it's a Greek word, goel. I mean, excuse me, Hebrew word, goel. Over and over and over, God says, I'm your goel. Boaz, in this passage, is the goel. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm your redeemer. I am your goel. I'm the one that buys you back. You are the architect of your own misery. Now I'm going to pay the price so you can get out of the pawn shop. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. I value, I see in you what you don't see or other people don't see in you. And in his redemption, it begins to restore us to who we are meant to be and beyond. Because you're going to see in a minute, or next week, you'll see Ruth becomes this woman who goes down in history. When we experience redemption, shalom, we begin to come into who God made us to be. And our lives begin to be significant in really surprising, unexpected ways. So Boaz says, hey, this other guy, I'm going I'm to talk to him. We're going to work it out. But here's what he says to her before we go to the end. He says, I want you to just lie down here. I just want you to lie down and rest. Because you've been overwhelmed and you've been alone. And I'm not going to take advantage of you. I'm going to take care of you. <laughs> wow. Isn't there moments in your life where you were, you were when you were overwhelmed and alone, you were taken advantage of? And Jesus comes along and says, when you're overwhelmed and alone, you can lie down here, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I mean, do you see that? This is an amazing moment. So it says uh, next, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law. Sorry, a little crying here. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, "How did it go, my daughter? See the anxiety? It's still there, right? Like she's. I'm sure she's waiting. You know." Oh my gosh, where, where is she? You know, it's, 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 it's still dark. She's up. Naomi meets her at the door. What happened? What happened? Right? She's, she's got that existential angst, overwhelmed, alone. She told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Naomi's still anxious. She shows Ruth the barley from Boaz. And I'll tell you the significance of that, like a, a gospel significance. And then because this, the word and this grain... Naomi goes from this anxiety to this rest. And she even tells Naomi, I mean, tells Ruth, just wait, Ruth. Just wait. It's, it's, a, it's a done deal. We can rest now. I mean, so Naomi goes, and the story is really about her. 
she goes from this place where she's overwhelmed and alone because of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, she finds rest. Even though all she has is, you know, probably a, a decent amount of barley, but it was only as much as Ruth could carry. But it was something. And in, in the New Testament, the Bible says, when you put your faith in Jesus, let me, let me read this passage. Here's what Paul said to these Christians in the city of Ephesus. He reminded them of something. He said, when you put your faith in Jesus, having believed, you were marked in Jesus with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption who are those who are, of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So what he says is, when God's made a promise that when you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven, he doesn't just leave you to, like, to hold on, and that's all there is, is just have his word. He gives you a, a seal and a deposit, and these were marketplace terms. He basically said, he gives you the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit, when you believe in Jesus, is God's presence comes and lives inside you, and you get this steel, this seal, and the seal was some wax with an owner's stamp on it. And what it says is the Holy Spirit comes in your life and he starts beginning to do this work in your heart to make you look like the one who has redeemed you and who now owns you. And then he's a deposit, so the Spirit is also a deposit. What's a deposit? It's when there's a commercial transaction, you're given a small amount, if you're the owner, to hold as a promise that the full payment's going to come. And so he's saying the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is God's promise to us to know it's all coming. It's all going to come. So, so let's close this way. Everything, this is a little take-home line for you to, to remember, summarize this whole thing. Everything we need, everything we long for comes when we, when we rest and believe. And the interesting thing about rest 